Um, us in here, we, we are going to be in Ephesians and Ephesians chapter 3 as we uh, move into the next chapter. Uh, this morning, as we've moved our way through Ephesians, most recently we've saw, seen the incredible way in which in Christ we are reconciled with God, that we are brought back to life, uh, but not just how we are reconciled to God as we've seen the last two weeks, how we are also reconciled one to another, in particular how Jews and Gentiles are reconciled uh, to each other. And as we move into chapter 3, in a sense, what we're going to see this morning is Paul's reaction as he thinks, as he contemplates uh, just the wonder of what he's talked about in chapters 1 and 2. Let's read it now, starting Ephesians uh, chapter 3 and verse 1. For this reason, I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation, as I have written briefly. When you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men and other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. This mystery is that Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which he has given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given, to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for all ages in God, who created all things, so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I'm suffering for you, which is your glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we need you today. We pray you would pour out your wisdom upon us uh, that we might see more clearly this day the wonders of your grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. When I was in seminary, um, I had the privilege, I worked in the admissions office, and one of my jobs was corresponding with folks who were interested in coming to seminary, and often I would give tours. And as we were trained to give tours, we learned certain stories about certain professors, you know, things to tell as we're walking around to keep things interactive. And one of them was about one of my professors, Roger Nicole. Now, Roger Nicole, that name probably means absolutely nothing to you, uh, but he is one of the... He was, he's now gone on to be with the Lord, Uh, but he was one of the big world-class theologians in the evangelical world um, in the last century. J.I. Packer says that he would put him on his short private list of persons worth celebrating. He He was a very important figure. And one of the stories we would tell, we were told, I assume it's true, because I told a lot of people this story, and now I'm telling it to you, Uh, but the Luther Whitlock, the, the the president of the time of RTS, um, had a dinner party for the faculty, and they, he decided he was going to play a game with them, and he had them all stand up. And he said, what I want you to do is I'm going to count, I'm going to start at one, and I'm going to work my way higher, and I want you to sit down when I've gotten past the number of languages that you know. So he counts, one, two, three, four, five, you know, and you know, it's like eight, nine, ten, there's still a couple of guys still standing, 
and he got to like 12 or 13, and suddenly it was only Roger Nicole standing. And it's said that he then said, I could have gone a couple more. Um, he was an amazing, uh, world-class theologian. Some call him one of the fathers of evangelicalism in the U.S. And he had an incredible theological library. 26,000 volumes of his personal theological library are now part of the, the library of the seminary, uh, which I was, including like original 16th and 17th century uh, reformed works. So he's this world-class theologian, but you know what's interesting about that? Is that he also had another book collection, a book collection of 6,000 mystery novels. Now, that's not typically what you would put into context of like a world-class theologian, right? That he, he loves to read mysteries, but maybe it shouldn't be that surprising at all to us. I think we're all engaged by a good mystery, by a really good story. And, and this morning, what I hope we'll see is that God has actually ordered the incredible story of redemption the story of how we are saved in an engaging way that actually includes mystery in it. Uh, and that's the mystery which Paul talks to the Ephesians about in our text before us this morning. Now, just a reminder, and we haven't talked about this much as we move through the book of Ephesians. As, as Paul's writing this, he's in jail. He's imprisoned. Um, he, he's imprisoned by the Roman government, but did you see as I read it who... It is that how he describes himself, who it is that he says he's imprisoned by, Ephesians 3.1, for this reason I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of the Gentiles. He doesn't consider himself a prisoner of the Roman government, but a, a prisoner of Christ. He doesn't bemoan the fact that he's in jail by the actions of the Roman government. He sees where he is as a service to the Lord and that it's somehow on behalf of of the Gentiles, the Gentile, the Ephesians, who he's, he's talking to. Uh, but what's really interesting, and, and you, might, you can see it there, just at the very end, it's kind of on the next line, it's hard to see, there's, and you might see it in your, your text, there's a dash in our text as we move to chapter, verse 2. And the reason is, we, we think that what's going on here is that Paul starts out to say something different that then he's going to go on to say, which is our whole sermon for this morning, okay? He, he was starting to say something, in fact, he picks up on it, down in verse 14, as he repeats some of the very same words, he says, for this reason I bow my knee before the Father. It appears that Paul, after, after reflecting on chapters 1 and 2 and all that he said, he's going to encourage the Ephesians. In fact, he's even going to say the words, I, Paul. It's, almost, it's like an apostolic commandment to them to do what? To bend their knee, to worship, to pray to their great God for the great things that he has done. And so, back to verse um, verse one. Verse 1, as he's saying these incredible words, as he, as he says those words, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of the Gentiles, it's as though he suddenly gets distracted. Now, remember, Paul, he's likely dictating these words. Somebody else is writing them down for him. And it's like he says these words, and he's just overcome. Overcome with the wonder of what that means, that he is a prisoner of Christ on behalf of the Gentiles. These aren't just cold, hard facts for Paul, but they're words that remind him of the wonder that he is speaking to Gentiles at all. It shouldn't be so. As he continues in verse 2, what does he say? Assuming that you've heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you, how the mystery was made known to me by revelation as I've written briefly. What is he talking about? 
He's talking about that most wonderful day, I think, where Paul the monster becomes Paul the apostle. You remember Acts 9, verse 1, what was Paul doing? He was breathing threats and murder. That's what he was doing. On that day, he was going to do everything that he could to defeat Christ's church, to destroy it. Paul on that day was dead in his trespasses and sins, living in the passions of his flesh, by nature a child of God, a child of wrath, sorry, but God, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved Paul. Even when he was dead in his trespasses, what did he do? Jesus himself stood before Paul stood before the one who was trying to bring destruction to the work of his church, the one who was his true enemy. Jesus himself spoke to Paul, and he brought Paul out of the darkness and into the light. Jesus made Paul on that day alive again, the one who was trying to destroy the church. And maybe you remember, he, he then goes off to a house, and then, then God calls upon one of his disciples in, in Damascus, Ananias, and this is what he says. Rise, and go to the street called Straight, at the house of Judas, uh, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. For behold, he is praying, he's seen a vision. A man named Ananias come in and lay his hands upon him so that he might regain his sight. And Ananias immediately says, no way. <laughs> Are you sure about this? I mean, this guy's trying to destroy your church. What does God say in verse 15? Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Folks, this is jaw-dropping. It should be jaw-dropping for, for you and I. The, the most rabid enemy possible of Christ. The most rabid enemy of his church. The one who wanted absolutely nothing to do with Gentiles. He would have never sat at a table with them. Would have absolutely had nothing to do with them. And what does Paul become? But the messenger to them, the voice by which they hear the gospel. This is an incredibly unlikely story, right? As we just hear it tell out, it, it should be that kind of thing that engages our hearts and minds. And this is why we see Paul talking this morning about a mystery this morning. You see, Paul speaks about, as he speaks about this mystery, he's, he's not talking about something that we can't know, Okay? He's actually talking about a mystery that, that we can now see that is now known. Look at Ephesians, uh, look back to Ephesians uh, verse 4. He says, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has been revealed to his holy apostles and prophets by the Spirit. And then a little bit farther on in verse 9, he's going to say this, and to bring to light for everyone, what is the plan of the mystery hidden for the ages in God who created all things? What is he saying? He's saying, yes, we have all the incredible prophecies. We have all the incredible words of the Old Testament. But now, we have gospel glasses, if you will, to be able to see clearly what those prophecies were about. I don't know if any of you have ever played one of those games um, that, that has like a clue book to it. A book that has all the answers. But it's written in... Um, red and blue ink, and so if you like just look at the book, you can't see it, and you have to take like this red filter thing and put it over it, and then suddenly the words appear before you. It, it looks like, am I the only one that's ever played a game like this? Nobody's nodding their head. Help me out, thank you. 
I feel a little better now. But, you know, it's like the words are right there in front of you whenever you're playing one of those games. But then it takes this, like, little red piece of filter that you put over it, and suddenly you can read the answer. Suddenly it becomes visible. And Paul is, is in a sense, saying that that's sort of how it's worked. Okay, the the Old Testament has given great hints. It's given great predictions, great prophecies about the, the, the coming of the Messiah, but nobody could imagine that the mysteries would unfold in the way that they have that the Messiah was actually going to go to his death, it's like it was too much. Or that, 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 that as we're going to be talking about, as we're talking about this morning, that, that believing Gentiles become an actual part of the people of God? He's saying this used, used to be a mystery, but it's now been made known. Let's look a, bit, a little bit. What does Paul say about this mystery? Verse 6. He says this mystery. Is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. He says the secret, the, the mystery is, is no more. It's, it's, it's been revealed. If you're a believer, you, you, you're in on the secret. You, you, you can know the glories of it. The mystery being the way in which Christ Jesus, that in Christ Jesus, the gospel goes out to everybody. It goes out to the very ends of the earth. It's no longer reserved for just one nation, one people, Israel, but it's expanded and all Gentiles can now trust in Christ. Those who are non-Jewish can trust in Christ and and they become part of the people of God. And you see the language he uses there. Now, the English doesn't quite bring it out, but I think you'll be able to follow me. In English, at least, actually the word co, along with, is kind of in front of each of these three things. What Paul says is that we are, with the Jewish people, Gentiles are now what? Co-heirs. Co-body members. Co-partakers in Christ. Co. Did you hear it? Co-heirs. Co-body members. Co-partakers in Christ. In Christ, we are one body, Jew and Gentile, and we hear that, and I fear that many of us probably aren't as excited about it as we should be. That we hear that and we say, oh yeah, and we've talked about that in some way or another the last two weeks, but I think we miss a bit of the wonder of what that really means. I mean, just imagine for a Jew of the day, you're thinking, oh yeah, that, that, you know, as you read the Old Testament scriptures, yes, the the Gentiles, they're going to be blessed, we're going to be a blessing for them, but then they hear this and it's like, what? Isn't that, this is a little much, you know? Like, like they're going to actually become a part of us? Like we're going to become one? Seems like too much for a people of distinction, a people, the Jewish people who had always separated themselves from others and always been a distinct people. Even for the Gentiles, the, the, most of the Ephesians that Paul is writing to, they live in a world of distinctions. Okay, we talked last week. You, you, you have those who, who are foreigners. You, you, you have aliens. Not not. If you weren't here last week, we're not talking about like space aliens, but um, those who are resident aliens and the land. And then you have citizens, like there's all these different distinctions. We're going to talk about slaves in a, in a few weeks. These distinctions are everywhere. And Paul says the gospel, it bulldozes those distinctions. It just bulldozes them right over. As he says in Galatians, he says this. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There's neither slave nor free. There is no male and female for all are one 
in Christ Jesus. All are one. This should be a world-shaking truth to us, that we are all one. But let's be honest. You and I, we, we still have distinctions all over the place, don't we? We still create so many distinctions in our life. Our, our hearts seem to be so prone to make them. Maybe it's because of somebody's nationality, somebody's skin color, somebody's economic status. Or maybe because of somebody's actions. Like we, 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 We're so quick to make distinctions. Now, before we moved up to this region of the country, uh, we, we served in uh, North Alabama for about nine years. And some of you, in fact, some of you in this room, I don't remember who, um, but some of you have at times said, oh, you're from Alabama. And if you ever have said that to me, you probably know my response. No, I'm not from Alabama. I was born and raised in Georgia. And that's really important, I usually tell you. Because people in Alabama, or people in Georgia, look down upon people in Alabama. They're, they're less than us. And people in Alabama, having lived there, they look down upon people in Mississippi. Okay? I don't know what people in Mississippi do. But, now, obviously some of this is, I, I try to be funny when I respond like that. But at the same time, I fear there, there's really like a truth behind it for myself, right? I, I like to make those distinctions. I like to think that somehow there's somebody that I'm better than. Thinking of Mississippi for a moment, this past week I was um, at, a, at a luncheon for actually the seminary that, that I graduated from. And there was a video and one of the former presidents was talking about how this seminary had grown out of Jackson, Mississippi. Now, I want to be quick to let you know, I did not go to the campus in Jackson, Mississippi. I went to the one in Orlando, Florida. That's where I graduated from. We love to make distinctions. Um, but the seminary has grown, and it's become quite large, putting out more PCA pastors than any of the other seminaries and, and that kind of thing. Um, but what he said is, what's amazing to him is that this came out of Jackson, Mississippi. He said, nothing good comes from Mississippi. This is somebody who was born and raised there. We love to make distinctions, don't we? It's just, it's like our hearts are so prone to it. Why do we do it? Oh, when we make distinctions, we feel better about ourselves, right? Makes us feel better because we find something better in some sort of created identity that we have made for ourselves, thinking that I'm better than. But Paul has told us, and he's told us over and over already in Ephesians, where our identity is and where our identity should come from. Our identity is found in Christ and in Christ alone. Remember, as I told you earlier, Paul was in the midst of, of telling the, 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 the Ephesians something that he wanted them to do, to, to pray and to worship, right, as he's going to pick up in verse 14. And in the midst of that, he can't help but pause to make sure that the Ephesians know the wonder of the mystery that has been revealed to the Gentiles. How wonderful it is that the Gentiles are now co-heirs, co-body members, co-partakers of the promise of the gospel. And that he, Paul, he, Paul, who used to do everything he could to destroy this message, is now doing the very thing that he could never have imagined himself doing 
And not only a proclaimer of the gospel that he once tried to destroy, but a proclaimer of it to a group of people that he despised, that he would have never sat down at a table with, the Gentiles. So Paul paints for us this beautiful picture of this mystery that comes to us in Christ, that we are able to be united with the people of God, co-heirs, co-body members, co-partakers. And for Paul, this leads him to an incredible purpose in his life, one that hopefully is helpful for us as well. Because you see, even as, as part of what leaves Paul in wonder is his story. And we've already heard part of his story this morning, right? How he, of all, is the most unlikely of ones to one be, even become an apostle to begin with. But secondly, to become an apostle to the Gentiles, you, you couldn't have picked a more opposite person for this. Paul sees that it's very unlikely too. Let's pick up at verse 7. He says, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given. Paul sees that it's come to him. And he, he's now going out, and it's totally by the grace of God, by the working of his power, by the working of the Spirit in his life. And he knows that because of who he is. Do you see how he describes himself in verse 8? He calls himself the very least, the very least of all the saints. Now, grammatically, what Paul says here is impossible. Okay, we have these things in our language called superlatives, right? And a superlative, you can't get greater than or you can't get less than, right? So the least, if, you call somebody, if you're calling yourself the least or you're saying something's the least, that means it's the bottom, right? You can't get below it. It's the basement floor of describing something. It's the least. And Paul here literally does the impossible. He says, I'm even less than that. Literally what he says is, I am less than the least, Less than the least. You see, he knows, Paul of all people, he knows how incredibly unworthy he is. He knows that who he is is impossible. Who Paul is is impossible without the work of God's incredible grace and the work of his incredible spirit in his life. He knows that he is totally a work of God's grace. He is not who he is because he, Paul, is great, but because his Savior, Jesus Christ, is. He says something similar to his son in the faith, Timothy. He says this, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, <laughs> talking about that before Acts 9, uh, who he was. He says, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus, the sane and trustworthy the saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. This is the Apostle Paul. He says, I am the least. I am less than the least. I am the foremost of sinners. And he says that it is to him who is the, less than the least. What does he say? Picking up in verse 8. He says, to me... Though I'm the very least, though I'm less than the least of all the saints, 
this grace was given. To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. To bring to light to everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. He says it's by grace that he is able to preach. And what is it he's able to preach? The unsearchable riches of Christ. Do you know what the unsearchable riches of Christ are? This word unsearchable, it's, it's, it's translated variously, incomprehensible, unending, boundless, incalculable, exhaustless, untraceable, infinite, too great to fully understand. Maybe that's the easiest one for us to understand. It's just like too great, like we, we can never really mine the depths of it. John Stott says this, of these riches, what these riches are. He says these, that they are riches freely available because of the cross. They include, try to follow along, the resurrection from the death of sin, victorious enthronement with Christ in the heavenlies, reconciliation with God, incorporation with the Jewish believers in his new society, the end of hostility and the beginning of peace, access to the Father through Christ by the Spirit, membership of his kingdom and household, being an integral part of his dwelling place among men, and all of this only a foretaste of the riches that are yet to come. In Romans, Paul says, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and knowledge of God. How, how unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. And in Job, he sa- God says, how, how, does, how does, who, sorry, uh, does great things beyond searching out and marvelous things beyond number. Beyond number, not even able to calculate. Just, just think for a moment of in, infinity or eternity. How easily can your mind grasp that? Can you understand it? Can you, can you comprehend it? Can, can you comprehend the, the infinite nature, the, the eternal nature of our great God? That he's always been. That there's never been a moment that he has not. And we begin to get just a piece of what this unsearchableness means. That we, we, we can't get to the end of it. And we, we sing like that, that old hymn, Oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus Vast, unmeasured, boundless, free, rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. This thing that we seemingly, we can't even fully grasp. Paul is showing us, I think, how in awe he is of God's grace in his life. He was lesser than the least. And he was commissioned to preach that which is infinite. That which we can only begin to grasp. That which we can never mine the depths of. That we can only begin to to understand these incredible riches of Christ. The riches of Christ that, that come to us in his incredible work for us. That we, of all people, are saved by grace. It's incredible to think of. So unthinkable. The riches of it unsearchable as they were for the Apostle Paul. Do you this morning, do you know the unsearchable riches of Christ in your life? If you don't, um, you, you may not be a believer. It's either you, you don't know Christ 
or you've wandered pretty far from him. I think it was Sinclair Ferguson that, that said something very similar to this. He said, to, to know Christ is to know how unsearchable are his riches. To know Christ is to know how unsearchable are his riches. How infinite are the riches that are to be found in him. To put it maybe a little bit different way, you and I will never graduate from knowing the riches of Christ. There is always more depth to be mined. In fact, if you're in Christ here this morning, you have all of eternity all of eternity, to mine the depths of the riches, the unsearchable riches that are found in Christ. And we will never, still never find the bottom of those riches, even in eternity. Is that incredible or what? As we begin to understand more and more the riches of that which we have in Christ. Now, Paul says that these riches that these riches have, have only now, um, in this age, in Christ's age, and whenever with Christ's coming, he says, been made known to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. It's a very odd phrase. And, and what is it that he's saying? It probably refers to all the angelic beings, including the fallen ones, Okay? And so actually what he's doing, in a way he's adding to, to what we were saying earlier, that even those who have been in the presence of God Almighty, even the, the angels who have never fallen, who have been constantly in his presence, didn't know all the details of the plan. Where still the, the mystery had not yet been revealed to them. One can only imagine the horror in heaven at the crucifixion. If God hadn't, maybe he, maybe he explained it to them in advance. But Paul tells us here that the light of the mystery that we've been talking about this morning, it becomes made known to those angelic beings. And how does it become made known? By the church. Through the church. You see the picture painted here is that, that as they have watched on, they now see the church, and they see the wonders of the multitudes from all tribes and nations now being engrafted into this incredible family of God. Even the heavenly beings didn't know this grand mystery and how it was going to take place, how God was going to demolish all the distinctions. They too are left in awe at God's Incredible, mysterious plan that he has worked out through the ages. And Paul says of all of this, in verse 11, this was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. You see, this has always been his plan. This is always the story that he planned to write. There is no um, rewriting of it. There is no, let's scratch out a chapter and we've got to replace it with a new chapter. This has always been the plan. This has always been the plan of redemption. And even, Paul tells us, even his sufferings, 
are part of that plan. Do you remember the very last verse? So I ask you to not lose heart over what I'm suffering for you. See, it seems like the, the Ephesians and some of the Christians are beginning to get worried. You know, here this apostle who brought the gospel to them is now imprisoned. What does this say about their faith? And Paul says, don't lose heart. What I'm suffering for you, <laughs> over what I'm suffering for you. He says, I'm suffering for you, which is for your glory. Earlier, I mentioned Ananias, right? And God speaks to Ananias. I didn't read the full quote. I want to go back and let, let's read the rest of it. And it might make more, a little more sense of, of verse 13. What did God tell Ananias? Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to carry my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him, Paul, how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. Do you get the picture? And Paul, how does he look at it? He looks at his suffering that has come upon him in his life as he has been a minister of the gospel. And how does he look at it? He finds glory in it. He finds it to be a privilege. He doesn't call himself, as we talked about in verse 1, he doesn't call himself a prisoner of the Roman government, but a prisoner of Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles. He sees it as a great opportunity, a great ministry that he has to the lost. Now, what does all this mean for us? This is great for Paul. But let's not think, yes, Paul is an apostle. He has a special office. But yet at the same time, our calling is, is so similar to his in so many ways. First, I want to remind us, I need to remind myself right now, that I too am less than the least. To you this morning, as you're gathered here, do you know that you are less than the least? That, that you aren't like, and see, this is where we draw distinctions. Well, I wasn't like Paul. I wasn't breathing threats and murder. No, remember what Paul said in Ephesians 2. You are dead in your trespasses and sins in which you once walked as children of wrath. Don't miss it. That's who you were. You were really no different than Paul. Don't try to draw distinctions. You, too, were less than the least. But yet... We've been called by this wonderful, this incredible gospel with an incredible purpose to take this gospel to, to the very ends of the earth. And as we too are called to take it out, to tell people about the unsearchable riches that we have found in Christ. As we continue to mine that depth and, and share it with others, we shouldn't be surprised when suffering comes our way too. We shouldn't be surprised at all. We shouldn't be surprised at all. Because we should recognize for whose glory it ultimately is. That it's ultimately for the glory of our Savior, for the growth of his kingdom. It's ultimately about him. Him who has showed to you and I such incredible, lavish grace saving us who are less than the least. Do you know the wonder of, the gra of God's grace this morning? Does your jaw drop as you think about this incredible unfolding of God's plan, how he has brought us 
into God's people through the incredible work of his son, that he sent his son to die so that we might have newness of life. Do you know this morning the unsearchable riches that are found in Christ Jesus? Coming to those of us who are, who are dead, who are enemies of God, who's brought to us newness of life, uniting us to himself in his death and resurrection and ascension, taking our sin upon him and him giving to us his perfect record so that we might be declared innocent in the courtroom of God, adopted into his family. You see, we could meditate all day long on these incredible riches. Each one of those things that I just mentioned, we could, we could spend time and we could go deeper and deeper and we would never find the bottom of the incredible riches that come to us in Christ. The unsearchable riches. The unsearchable riches that caused Paul to pause. He was talking to the Ephesians and he had to press the pause button and said, I, I gotta just remind you, I gotta make sure that you know how great our God is i got to make sure that you know how incredible it is that I am an apostle to the Gentiles. I was the last one who would ever do this, and yet God is using me. Paul reminds us of how incredibly great our God is, how awesome and unsearchable is the grace that is found in our Lord Jesus Christ. As we're gathered here this morning, do you know the riches? Do you find them to be unsearchable? Are you mining the depths? Do you know the unsearchable riches that are found in Christ Jesus? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are so gracious to us that you have saved us, that you have rescued us who in no way deserve it, and yet you have bestowed your abounding grace upon us. You have called us those who were once dead in our sin, and you have called us into to new life. We thank you. We thank you for the wonderful mystery of the gospel, the, the wonderful mystery that you have now communicated to us, the good news of how it is that we are saved and, and how we, we are co-heirs, co-body members, co-partakers in Christ Jesus. Oh, would you help our hearts to continue to mind the incredible depth of our Savior, Jesus Christ. We pray this in his name. Amen.